Uh, hi, today I'm speaking to Bern Hobart, who writes the newsletter, The Diff. Uh, he's quite possibly one of the most insightful writers I've read, and I'm really happy to have him on the podcast today. Uh, hi, Bern. Thanks for coming. Thanks. It's great to be here. Okay. My first question to you is that how do you end up at this? How, uh, what, what motivated you to say, to, to take the risk of, of, of writing a, a paid newsletter? Sure. So the original plan was actually fairly low risk. So I'd worked in finance for a long time, um, sometimes on the buy side, sometimes on the sell side. Um, I'd gotten a little bored with my my previous position. I just felt like there was um, a lot of the, the work that I was doing was not quite what I wanted to do. It was very close. So I figured it would be pretty low risk to uh, leave that job for a while, do some writing, use that writing to get in front of people who were um, working on investing in a way that that I thought would be more fun for me personally, and then um, move on to my next job. So that was the original plan. And um, so for a while, the writing was sort of an unpaid audition for my next hedge fund or sell side role. And then um, part of what happened was just, I was getting enough, uh, enough attention, enough traction from the newsletter that I decided to start charging for it for a while. And um, at that point, my plan was, do the job search, but have all of these side projects running at the same time so that it can be a, a zero burn rate job search. And, um, you know, I'd have the subscription in- income from the newsletter and I'd do some writing for other outlets and I'd do some consulting and I had this all modeled out and thought I could get to a pretty sustainable low key lifestyle and then move on to my next thing. And then, um, the the subscriptions for the newsletter did pretty well, did better than I expected. And um, the newsletter also ended up taking up more time than I expected. So um, I slowly got locked in in both directions, both that this is uh, doing well enough that it doesn't make that much sense to focus on other things. And also that this takes up enough time that it's really hard to focus on doing anything else. So, um, so right now I do some consulting, I do some investing. Most of my time and most of my income is the newsletter. Okay. Now, one of the themes I have seen in your work, which you yourself have said, have said is that you use metaphors from finance and, and various uh, economic models and, and apply them to the uh, to other things. But most finance and economic models I've seen are pretty, you know, they're pretty obscure. There's theta, gamma, a bunch of Greek letters, a weird number of graphs. So how do you, so how do you um, take, take what's important and, and, and uh, separate the wheat from the shaft of sorts. Sure. So what's nice about finance is that a lot of um, like it's it's this very stylized, very abstract version of real world interactions. And often because it's so stylized, because everything is being reduced to um, you know you pay money up front and you get some stream of cash flows, or you you pay money up front and make some prop bet on some outcome. Because everything is being reduced to these really clean, really simplified abstractions, it actually reveals some of the underlying forces that that drive um, drive whatever the trends are. And and then you can take the models that you you can come up with models if you're looking at um, say buying. How do you value an option if a stock is at fifty and the option is priced at the option gives you the right to buy at seventy? The option's not worthless, but what is it worth and how do you figure that out? Um, there are a lot of real world opportunities that look like that. So you could imagine um, if someone, if there's a a kid who's ten years old and is in the ninety nine point eight percentile of height. 
you can think about that as being a sort of out of the money call option on being a professional basketball player. And then you can think about what are the drivers of the value of that option? Like, is it worth it to really, really focus hard? Is it worth it to sort of hedge your bets and, um, you know, spend most of your time focusing on a, a more plausible career and then spend a little bit of time focusing on the possibility of being a professional um, athlete? And you, you wouldn't be able to come up with the, the options math if you looked at people's career paths and looked at their investments of time and attention and effort, because that stuff is just so abstract and hard to measure. But within finance, because it's so stylized, um, a lot of the abstract stuff, a lot of the qualitative stuff actually disappears. You can't have a qualitative view on, um, you know, you can't really do a qualitative analysis of uh, comparing a warrant and a convertible bond and the underlying asset. You have to actually quantify a lot of this stuff. So you, because you quantify it, you can apply more math to it and um, you can, you basically get more significant figures of, uh, of accuracy when you're trying to answer these questions. And then you, you look at the logic that you use to price these assets, and then you can apply that back to the original problem. So um, one of the things that you, one of the things that option math tells you is that the more out of the money an option is, so like the more, the more extreme the outcome you care about is, the more you should actually focus on um, maximizing volatility versus maximizing expected return. So um, there could be a set of behaviors that um, are like, on average, the best way to achieve a, a moderate degree of success in whatever domain you choose. And then you look at what behaviors are really, really high variance and will either make you a massive success in one domain or pretty much a failure. And um, the more extreme the outcome that you're targeting, the more you actually want to go for either massive su success or massive failure. And that, you know, once you say it, it sounds really obvious, but this is true of any kind of model um, that the models end up maybe formalizing the obvious and then uh, sometimes they have non-obvious consequences and in a lot of cases when you're taking a financial metaphor and you're applying it to the real world it gives you a direction to go in but doesn't actually give you a absolute thing to do for the for the same reason that um that i mentioned earlier that the the financial models are based on this very stylized subset of reality and then you apply them to the messy real world and you get some insights but you don't get absolute answers Mm -hmm. But I think I think when I when I hear that, what I get in mind of is Charlie Munger's lattice work of mental models idea, where he says, you know, uh, go read uh, physics, chemistry, biology, economics, and history, and you'll get that. Do you think such a general education would 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 help someone to prepare for the real world? I think so. I think that um, it's always so part of the. Part of the trouble with thinking about advice like that is that there are things that are good to do, but um, people are very bad at measuring the extent to which they do them. So, um, you know, if you if you try to be a generalist, one of the problems with being a generalist is that you can feel like a generalist if you know um, almost nothing but a tiny little bit about a whole broad set of topics. And especially if you, you learn a bunch of contrarian views on a bunch of different topics, you can feel like you have this really, really broad understanding, but you've actually selected a, a tiny subset of what you need to know. So I think that um, like the, the way to implement the Munger advice is not read about everything. It is pick a pick different disciplines and different subsets of those disciplines and read a lot about those, read enough that you can replicate the, the standard view and you can articulate 
a lot of the um, a lot of the heterodox versions of that view or a lot of the counter arguments against that view. And um, so it's I would say that like the Munger advice, if he says read about physics and chemistry and biology, um, I think the way to 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 operationalize that is pick one of physics, chemistry or biology and be able to have a cogent argument with someone who actually studies that field full time. You know, you'll, you'll probably lose the argument, but, but at least be able to demonstrate that you've done the basic reading, you know the fundamentals, that if you have a weird view, you know what the standard view is that you're arguing against. And um, that's, that is tough to operationalize in, in its own way. There's like the standard Dunning-Kruger thing that um, you, if you learn a little bit about a topic, you feel like you know more than the mainstream, then you learn a little bit more, you realize mainstream is actually pretty much right about almost everything. And then you read a little bit more and you get to what are the limits? Where are people overconfident? Where is there maybe some level of institutional bias in favor of one set of views such that people think they're 99% true and they're maybe more like 80% true. And so there's still an edge, but it's tough to quantify that edge. It's tough to get to the point where you know what that edge is. Speaking of institutional bias, I think I just realized that so 2020 was a, was a weird year for trust in institutions. For the first half of the year, most global institutions didn't do well with regards to COVID-19. But in the second half of the year, the same, the same governments and, and institutions that, 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 that failed uh, did extremely well with regards to vaccines. What's your, what's your take on that? Why did the same people who failed did, do so well in the end? Um, I'm honestly... I'm not entirely sure. At one level, it does fit into a historical pattern where, um, especially with the US, the US just tends to ignore problems until they're big problems. And then there's a huge crisis and it's really obvious that everyone was underprepared. And then things start happening and people start actually working to solve the problems. Like if you you compare um, what you would have felt like about American military preparedness on, um, you know, 24 hours after the attack on Pearl Harbor, you would have said that America is just totally incapable of um, seeing the ge geopolitical writing on the wall and totally incapable of having an early warning system that detects that, um, you know, fleets are on the move and planes are taking off from aircraft carriers and so on. But then you go a couple years later and the U.S. was able to marshal just an incredible amount of resources, able to produce an overwhelming number of planes, able to, um, in parallel, run a conventional war, upgrade all the conventional equipment, um, deploy many, many millions of people around the world, and develop totally novel weapons, um, and actually develop the supply chain, um, develop multiple supply chains in parallel to actually build the raw materials for those weapons. So um, the U.S. just tends to get to a slow start when there's a crisis, and then be overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly good at ultimately ending that crisis. And um, I'm not sure if that's um, like, that's two data points. And it's a little bit harder to argue that with things like say the, the oil crisis or, um, you know, the, the war in Vietnam was not like a case where the US started out bad and then got really, really um, effective towards the end. It was more like a case where the US was um, just very, very gradually um, over gradually but continuously overdoing it and um, and then you know uh, got into a position where between military constraints and domestic constraints and foreign policy constraints it was just really hard to have any any good outcome or even any neutral outcome so it doesn't happen every time but I think I think that's part of it I also think that um, you know there's 
early on in COVID, uh, a, a lot of Twitter discourse was about the fact that when there was a, a plague in England, um, at one point there was a plague in England and Shakespeare wrote a bunch of good plays. At one point there was a plague and um, Isaac Newton figured out calculus. So um, sometimes if you just give people this um, forced break from what they're doing, they do end up developing something really, really interesting that they would not otherwise have done. Um, There's some interesting historical examples of that, like um, Unix operating system, I believe was developed because um, one of the programmers on it, I forget which one, um, his family went on a vacation. So he was just alone and um, was able to spend a bunch of time working hard and concentrating. And then um, the integrated circuit the, the Texas Instruments version of the integrated circuit was developed because TI had this policy of um, everyone takes a big vacation in the middle of the summer and uh, Jack Kilby had just joined the company so he didn't have enough vacation days. So he had to stick around the office and, um, and work on something independent. So, you know, sometimes you give people just enforced isolation and they actually produce something really, really useful. And it's often something that is um, where there's been a lot of research saying it's plausible. A lot of people think it could happen. No one knows when it'll happen. And then it suddenly happens. So um, mRNA vaccines seem to fit that profile where there were there were people who said this could this could totally revolutionize medicine. There were a lot of skeptics. And then um, you once you tell people that like this is the time to do it, then it gets done. And, and the US just we have a very big economy. Um, Western Europe has a very big economy. Um, there's just a lot of um, a lot of implicit slack in the sense that if you need to build a whole lot of something new, um, the rich places are the place to do it as long as you actually have the resource, as long as you can actually mobilize the resources. There's just there's a lot more to mobilize. A lot of it is still in use, but it can be shifted around given a big enough crisis. Mm-hmm. But you spoke about US versus Western Europe. And I think of it, they have uh, somewhat similar levels of development, similar institutions. But if you look at it, uh, comparatively, America has done a lot better at developing vaccines and, um, and delivering them to people. And then uh, the speed at which the American government has worked has been far faster, especially on the fiscal side compared to the EU's recovery fund. What, what led to this divergence? Because you might expect that that uh, that with 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 levels of political polarization in in the U.S. they do a lot worse because they're just haggling all the time. But in Europe, with its relatively uh, lesser levels of political polarization, did a lot better. Why did this happen? You know, I'm I always go back and forth on how polarized Europe really is because. At one level, it feels like the American political um, situation, because people are being elected within the same population, like there's there's just a lot of, um, like it's the same electorate that's voting for Republicans and Democrats and people switch sides um, from election to election, um, like the voters switch sides from election to election. So a lot more of the conflict happens very openly. You know, someone says something and there's a counter argument and there are attack ads and there are other ads. So it's all very visible. and. Within Europe, it's more like there's um, there's some intra uh, there's some inter-country conflict, but since there's generally not a common electorate that is choosing, you know, do we want to do things the French way or the German way or the Polish way or whatever, um, a lot more of that conflict seems to happen either in a very passive-aggressive way or it's behind closed doors or something like that. It's just it's less visible, and. Um, I think there's like there's always selection effects in terms of what's going on versus what are you going to hear about, and I feel like in the U.S. there's just a lot more selection for hearing about 
political conflict. But um, there's, and that means that there's always a surprising amount of uh, policy continuity. Like if you, if you want to make a reliably good contrarian bet every four years, that bet should be the whoever got elected is going to continue a surprising number of things that that person's predecessor did. And the meta bet to make on that is if you hear about something really bad that one administration did, check the dates and make sure that it wasn't that the previous administration did it, but it seemed like the kind of thing that the new administration would like to do. Um, that happened a lot with um, the immigration debate under Trump, where there were a whole lot of um, things. There were like sting operations that happened in 2015 and got publicized in 2017. And um, there was a lot of discussion over how this, you know, this reveals how how terrible Trump is. And what it really reveals is that um, the U.S. immigration system is uh, deeply, deeply broken and um, that, you know, any any level of enforcement often ends up. Um, leading to some pretty bad behaviors at some point down the line. And then um, you can also look at that with China policy under under Trump versus under Biden, that a lot of things that Trump did, they just kept on going. And some of that was um, that Trump made something salient that were actually, they were popular, but no, there were not any policy entrepreneurs trying to make them um, part of the platform. So Trump makes them part of the platform and it feels very Trumpian that we're, you know, we're going to go after Huawei, we're going to sanction these people, we're going to prevent Chinese companies from raising money in American capital markets. And then um, a lot of that stuff ends up being popular enough that Biden sort of rolls with it. Um, he, he did, he undid some things that Trump did, but a lot of the, a lot of the China policy just sort of stuck around. So um, I think in the US, we just, we tend to exaggerate how much conflict there really is. And, um, and then in Europe, we probably understate how much conflict is going on because um, it's not mass market conflict that is used to, to show that you should vote for one party or another. It's more like there are divergent interests and, um, and Europe in general, like as, as the countries in the EU um, slowly consolidate into, you know, some people call it a blob. I, I'm not sure if it's a blob. Um, as as more of their decisions get made collectively rather than at the national level, you end up distributing a lot more veto power. And um, the thing about veto power, if there's a big bureaucratic organization that is um, indirectly but not directly sensitive to the popular will, a lot of times the way that conflict shows up is that it doesn't do things that it would otherwise do. And it's really hard to you know, if you, if you read the news for a couple months, it's there's not going to be there's not going to be that many headlines that are like. EU doesn't do X. It's just, you notice that X happens in one place and it doesn't happen somewhere else. Or if it happens in the US, it happens much more slowly in Europe. And there seems to be a bit more conflict going on um, in making it happen. So I think that, um, I think that's that's basically what's going on. It's like you have um, you have this more passive aggressive approach to conflict, and a lot of what takes place is that things get vetoed that would otherwise happen. And um, you sort of have to, you have to say that the guide to what's going on in Europe is that um, in a more functional set of circumstances, it would look more like the US. And so to the extent that it doesn't, there's this undercurrent of mutual hostility that's driving that. Mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's a perspective I hadn't considered before. But on the US's media, where the media glorifies things, it seems that American media is in a death spiral with fewer journalists, worse, worse I mean, more, um, more angry articles and then a fewer journalists, angry articles, so on. Um, you've been working in online advertising for, for I mean, you, you, if I remember correctly, you, your first job was there. What catches attention on the internet these days? 
Um, what catches attention on the internet? So it is, it is actually increasingly hard to get outside of a filter bubble and to really know what's actually popular versus what's popular in your peer group. And um, even within peer groups, there are things that a lot of people participate in, but that are not, they're not actually popular. It's just very low effort to, um, to make a comment. And so it feels like there's a lot of engagement. So, you know, if you, if I just look at my filter bubble, um, obviously hyper-partisan political arguments get a ton of attention. And there's, there's a set of politicians who are like, basically if your beat is just covering that politician, you'll have something to say every single day. Um, there are culture war issues where there's deliberate mutual miscomprehension. So um, everyone gets to talk past each other. Um, there's this neat selection effect where if you think of like, there are a bunch of people saying pretty reasonable nuanced things, but that's boring. And then there are people who are either really dumb or um, more likely really, really willing to bite the bullet and say that, you know, they, they not only think that bad thing, like, they don't really think that X should be legal, but it should be celebrated. And those are the people whose views get amplified by the other side because you get to say, this is what the other side truly believes. So you have a lot of people who are selecting from the far tails of one another's bell curves and um, treating that as the median viewpoint. And that just leads to endless wasted time, high cortisol, um, nothing good really comes of it. Um, but there's there has been this undercurrent of um, people actually getting sick of that stuff, getting sick of the, the low value sort of fast twitch media stuff and, um, and getting more into long form, deeply thought out pieces on, on topics that are not very salient, but can be very interesting. And that's a trend that, that I, try to, uh, I try to really lean into. And um, you can, there are, there are definitely people who will, um, they take like the, the technocratic centrist viewpoint, and then they occasionally write contrarian things on culture war stuff, and that's a that's a decent way to to market um, technocratic contra semi contrarian centrism. But um, it does it's just so tempting because you do get a lot of traffic when you argue about this stuff. Like I I try to pretty aggressively avoid um, political stuff outside of the te technocratic stuff in my long form writing. On Twitter, I do a little bit more of it and I get a lot more engagement when I do it, but it seems to be pretty low quality engagement. Sort of like the people you'd expect to like this, like it, the people you'd expect to hate it, hate it. And um, so you haven't really learned anything. You just riled everybody up. Um, in terms of the broader question of media decline, um, I, you know, I've actually, I've sort of moderated on that topic because I was reading more about the historical media cycles and it just seems like media, the media industry goes through these weird cycles that are not related to the economic cycle, but they are related to what the strongest form of distribution is and um, where the best economics are. So there, like, there's already been a, a death of the media cycle that happened in um, roughly the middle of the 20th century, at least in the U.S. I don't know about other places, but um, it used to be that in most towns in the U.S. there would be a morning newspaper and evening newspaper. And um, I think the way that the way that work shifts usually worked, like factory jobs would usually start earlier in the day. So if you were a blue collar worker, you'd go to work early, you'd get home um, more late afternoon than evening, you'd have time to relax, read the newspaper, et cetera. And then if you were a white collar worker, you had a more relaxed morning and worked a bit later. So you read the morning paper instead. So in a lot of media markets, it was actually a duopoly rather than a monopoly. And um, 
there was a trend as the U.S. deindustrialized um, that there was just less of a market for evening papers. So many more cities went from two paper towns to one paper towns. And um, this was part of what Warren Buffett was taking advantage of in the late 70s when he bought the Buffalo News through Berkshire Hathaway was that um, it was originally the Buffalo Evening News. And um, both of the Buffalo papers were suffering, but he figured that uh, the Evening News would probably be able to outlast its competitor. And then if Buffalo went from a one paper town, two paper town to a one paper town, then there would be uh, a monopoly. So when people in the 90s started talking about um, 90s and especially the 2000s, they started talking about how newspapers are being destroyed because classified advertising is all moving to Craigslist and um, now it's easier to target these local media markets. They're not talking about how the, the media model that worked for a century is being destroyed. They're actually talking about how a media model that was developed in the 70s and really in the 80s and 90s, um, partly in response to the rise of cable TV, how that model was being destroyed. So newspapers went from to duopoly and there's not a lot of competition to there's actually a lot of competition from other media sources, but at least with classifieds, that is really, really targeted and it's very hard to duplicate on, on radio or through cable TV or through um, certainly through broadcast TV. So um, that became their main focus. And that was a really lucrative business, but it was this very, very brief era in the entire history of, um, of media. And um, actually Ben Evans has done some good writing on this as well. Um, less on the less on the two paper thing, um, like two paper to one paper town thing, and more on the, the classified ads as really being a historical blip. But, um, you know, given that, like it, it, looking at media, when I was learning about this in the 2000s, it really felt like there was this golden age of newspapers, and it lasted a really long time, there were fabulous businesses, and then it went away. And it's more like, there was actually this really tenuous brief golden age where a newspaper business was a fantastic business. And um, it was also a very nerve wracking time. Like it, it became a fantastic business because um, all of the non-wonderful parts of the news business got competed out. And the only thing left was this one set of ads that was actually really, really lucrative. You could target a specific geography. And then that went away. Um, so I, I suspect that those cycles just happen in media and um, we may end up with more of a swing towards subscription media. Certainly if you look at the financials of the New York Times, you can see that um, online subscriptions have done very well for them. Um, and of course, Substack is also built on that premise that uh, people will people will pay for stuff that they like. They will pay a lot more for um, the handful of people that they like than they would pay for the entire bundle that they're a little more indifferent to. And, um, and then at some point there will be a swing in the other direction. And there's also this other dynamic in media, which is um, a little more broad, but it's, um, it's the idea that you have, you have some parts of the media ecosystem that are um, hard to monetize. They're very low friction. So you can get famous, but you can't get rich. And then there are other parts where you can get rich, but you can't get famous. And um, one way this shows up is in um, being a guest on cable TV news shows and writing a book. Um, those are not really lucrative ways to spend your time, but if they get you speaking gigs, then that can be a really, really lucrative way to spend your time. Mm -hmm. So um, on the other hand, there are just not that many people who got famous by doing paid speaking gigs. Like they're, you know, you don't really have examples of someone who they used to do, they used to be a motivational speaker charging $50 a session and now they charge $50,000. Um, you usually have to work your way up in some other domain. But now we see that with stuff like um, people who get big on Twitter, use that to promote Substack. They don't make any money from Twitter, but they make a ton of money on Substack. And um, the, the Twitter environment is low friction enough that they can promote themselves. You talked about um, not 
getting anything that is too political but staying tech uh, but staying on something that is more technocratic what's your writing process like how do you decide and okay i'm going to write this because i noticed on your paid subscriptions you've been focusing on dd and travel companies so like how did how does the idea come to you and how do you research through the how do you get through the process of from idea to post on your newsletter so this is in constant flux um so like people it's nice people ask me this question on multiple interviews and um i'm able to give a different answer every time so the answer changes so right now the way it works is i have a pretty long backlog of like of post ideas it's probably i don't know 50 or so that i could write at some point in some cases i will have um some reading that i've assigned to myself before i write these things um some of them are really easy posts and i sort of i like to have a backlog of things i know i can write pretty fast because sometimes i won't have any other ideas and so it's good to just take one out of cold storage and write it um i will occasionally write something um in advance and just not publish it for a while if it's something that i think will last a long time um sometimes i will end up deciding what to write because there's one news story that i think really illustrates an interesting trend or raises an important question but a lot of what i'm doing is just accumulating um patterns and accumulating questions and also keeping an eye out for institutions and people that i think reflect multiple interesting trends so if you like if you look at things i've written recently sometimes i will try to write something that is about a really broad question like is inflation transitory or is it not um does the us electorate prefer um inflation or deflation or like what's their what direction is their bias and how has that changed over time and then sometimes it's something really specific like um one of my recent pieces was on bail resorts and i i just think bail is a a really neat company that illustrates things about how to do a roll up and how to recruit people and how different companies react to climate change in different ways and how there's been this shift from um one time payments to subscriptions it illustrates just a lot of different facets of um of modern economic life and um i've in that case i was i was sort of double dipping because i i think everything that i mentioned in the veil write up i had alluded to elsewhere and used veil as an example but i hadn't tied it all together into here's how this one company functions and here's what we can learn from it so there's there's a little bit of that i think that's that's one of the benefits of being that um having the combination of trying to be a generalist by way of doing deep dives on different topics is that you you extract different patterns that you can use in a lot of places um so i had a piece a while ago on how the um early history of the chemistry industry uh, the early history of the chemicals industry and the dyes industry is a lot like the current situation in chips um that came about because i was doing a lot of reading on um the golden age of corporate research and development labs and i was also doing a lot of reading on chips and um i saw some similarities but i was also able to do some posts that were just about chips so um it's that's that's part of what i do I'm, i try to move back and forth between different levels of abstraction i'm actually not sure what readers care about the most um i actually get pretty similar feedback on the pretty high level theoretical posts and then the really deep dives on smallish companies or companies that not everybody cares about. So um I think I'm just going to continue doing all of that. But yeah, it, basically I I read a lot um a whole lot and I try to make note of patterns and I um try to accumulate different examples in different domains of those patterns and then I try to find instances where there's a company that shows a lot of different patterns working together at the same time. 
Mm-hmm. So I guess the way I put it is you're living off the off the interest of your of your previously accumulated knowledge. Sort of like after you're you're sixty or so, if you have enough if you have enough money in the in the in the bank, even with point two percent of a big of a big amount is a lot. But you mentioned you read a lot. So what do you read, and what's your media diet like? I mean, some people. Pick it out in uh, separately into short-term media, like like a uh, news and long-term, as in books. Uh, how do you decide what to read and, and where to read? Yeah, so I try to do a combination of um, reading the things everyone's reading to see if I can come up with a variant view, and then reading things nobody's reading so that I can have variant facts. Um, so I read the Wall Street Journal and Financial Times um, daily. And I read The Economist somewhat. Um, I used to be very diligent about that, but it keeps it keeps slipping. And some of it is because my my weekly schedule. Um, I just always end up being really, really energized and ready to go on Monday, and being pretty frantic by the end of the week, and then just exhausted by Friday. So um, I, because The Economist comes out on Thursdays noonish, um, I'm generally at the point where I can't triage enough to really get through it um, before it gets kind of uh, obsolete. Anyway, um, so I do a lot of mainstream stuff. I, I subscribe to um, probably a couple hundred blogs and news sites online. And um, in most cases, I'm just skimming those. You know, like I'll, I'll look at the stories on TechMeme, on TechCrunch, um, on The Verge, et cetera. And um, I try to find these niche little sites where it's one person who writes something interesting every couple months, but they have a day job and they have other stuff they focus on. So um, they're sort of doing a, a um, more diversified version of what I'm doing. So instead of spending all their time trying to find interesting ideas and connections, they're spending most of their time doing um, data science or starting their company or marketing health food or whatever. And then every so often they write down their observations. I think that's a good mix. And then um, books, I... I try to structure my week so that I have a lot of time just reading books. Um, and the the writing I do or the reading I do um, long form, it really varies because I, I try to read some things that people recommend to me. Um, sometimes I will just pick out a bunch of books that I think will give me a well-rounded view of a topic. And then I read all of those. So um, when I did my, my China week posts, I just picked out a, I think, I think it was a total of like 4,000 pages of books that were um, either about Chinese companies or about the Chinese economy or um, about previous historical analogs to what's going on in China right now. I did not actually get through all of them, but um, got, I, I learned a pretty decent amount about uh, recent Chinese history, um, political and economic. So, um, so sometimes I'll, I'll do that. And then there's just, um, there are some books where either I've read it before, or I've known I should read it for a long time. And, um, and so I try to make time to read that. Like um, I'm reading Plato's Republic right now. And I read it a very, very long time ago. And I think it's um, more interesting to read now. And um, after that, I'm going to go through um, some Leo Strauss commentaries on Plato and see what I can pull out. And then um, there's commentary on Strauss. So can sort of work my way up the stack to the most meta philosophical commentary mm-hmm. and that stuff it's um you know basically everything that can be said about plato uh, has probably been said by this point there have been a whole lot of smart people who devoted a whole lot of their time to um reading ancient works and thinking about them on the other hand a lot of what's been absorbed by these people is not um they don't cite it by name, but it affects how they think. So um, 
it's sort of it's sort of taking your intellectual vitamins to to read old stuff that a lot of other people have read because you'll be able to identify its influences if it's more um, top of mind and it's harder to identify those influences if if you uh, you don't know the source material and sometimes just reading reading stuff that people know about but don't necessarily read is just really useful like um, He's not Plato, but he's actually uh, pretty sharp. Um, Francis Fukuyama's um, *The End of History* and *The Last Man* um, really worth reading because, in part, because the impression that I'd gotten from it uh, popularly was that Fukuyama was saying it is the end of history, and um, that is not at all what the book is about. In fact, the book has a bunch of these really perceptive remarks, like um, he's writing in the early '90s and he says, "Okay, USSR is gone, but." Um, there are still plenty of religious fanatics. Some of them have access to oil money, so we should worry about that. And then he also says, you know, it feels like the capitalist democracy has triumphed, but what if there's some other model that comes out of Asia and is more authoritarian and does capitalism better than the capitalist countries? What will we do then? So um, in a way, it's an incredibly perceptive book. And I still think the big problem was that the article that Fukuyama wrote was called The End of History? Question mark, And the book that he wrote was called The End of History. So um, he... You could look. You could glance at the cover of the book and um, come up with one impression of what the book was about. And since the conversion rate from glancing at the cover to reading to the end is pretty low, that ended up being the popular perception. So um, it's good to go back and read that stuff. Um, often, people who are really famous for being smart in one domain have pretty smart observations in other domains. And um, often, often books that seem like they're timeless books about political science or philosophy or the good life, um, they end up being very, very salient today. And um, sometimes the, the patterns that it took a really, really brilliant person to observe in the past, um, you know, in, in the Agora or um, in parliament or at the Roman Senate, um, sometimes those patterns are incredibly easy to see on Twitter. And it's useful to know that humans have always acted this way and that um, some people have always hated it. Some people have always taken advantage of it. Etc. Uh, so, I I do try to read um, read some older books for for that pragmatic reason and because I think it's just good for me. One thing I've noticed among everybody who writes prose is that nobody is that the 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 normal structure of prose is just paragraph paragraph paragraph. While oh, throughout history we we've, we've had various various. Um, ways to do this the most the the oldest way would be a socratic dialogue and bullet points and powerpoint and bullet points but i wondered why does nobody write through socratic dialogue i mean i would i definitely would would like to see for example somebody um taking two points of taking one person one character with one point of view and another character with another point of view and making and making them fight on the screen that's a really good question um I, I think some of it is that it feels arrogant because, so um, I used to argue online way more than I do now. And um, looking back on that, I was just really rude. And one of the things that I would do sometimes is a Socratic dialogue. And I realized it just feels incredibly pretentious. Like you are, you're putting yourself in the position of um, the, um, the lecturer or the professor or something, and you're sort of guiding your student to the truth. But um, it, it's not like, the people you're talking to think that they are the student who is sitting at the foot of the master. Um, it, I, I'm not going to to um, name this person because that would be rude. But there is a case I can think of where there's a, a prolific online writer who will sometimes do Socratic dialogues, and um, he has a bit of a, a mm, 
something close to a cult of personality around him, um, like more so than the average writer. Anyway, he does these Socratic dialogues and they just, they strike me as really pretentious because it is really hard to write a dialogue where um, you know that one of the characters is right and you give the other character good arguments. What you will typically do is um, just naturally- hmm? You'll you'll straw-man it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you give them um, the worst of the popular arguments because those are the ones you're most comfortable beating. And some of it is like, it's almost living out this fantasy of who would be the ideal person for me to argue with if I really, really wanted to win this argument. And I think a lot of what drives argument is not um, not the quest for truth, that's just a happy side effect. It's really the the quest to win the argument. And um, I think that the, the English common law system is in part this effort to take just the natural argumentativeness of people and uh, the natural tendency to use whatever plausible justification you can for whatever it is that you just really want to do, whatever's in your self-interest. And they're sort of, um, they try to use this um, verbal single combat approach to figure out what are the actual, um, what are the real world concepts? Like what, what set of laws and precedents is actually sustainable and leads to less pointless arguing and more interesting arguing. So, um, they, it is an adversarial approach, but it's always easier to win if you're actually right. And the hope is that um, having the facts on your side trumps having rhetorical talent on your side. Um, so yeah, that's, I think that's part of why Socratic dialogues don't work online. And I think some of it is just, we're, we're used to this medium where if you're reading something, it is from one person who's writing to you. And even the Socratic dialogues, it's someone else writing what the dialogue was. So um, at the at one level, it is a dialogue. At another level, it is uh, a first person view of what the dialogue was. I think Bloomberg experimented with this in 2016 or so, where they got two two economists with with, with opposing viewpoints to, I guess, uh, have a conversation, and they put the transcript of that. I thought it was incredibly difficult to read. But my, a question later to this would be: What do you think of the pseudonymous economy thesis? Because I, I what I thought with this was: Okay, if people think you're pretentious on this account, just um, switch to your alt and, and do it. So why do you write uh, with your real name online? And uh, you know, what is your take on the should people use their real, real names? Um, I think that it is very important to have a robust pseudonymous economy. I think there are, um, there are a lot of viewpoints that um, I think are at least worth considering, but they're sort of, um, they're in what Paul Graham calls the, the what you can't say category. So I think it's really useful to have people who are sharing these viewpoints and um, just not risking, um, not risking personal consequences. And of course, the, the function of those personal consequence risks is that we have this sort of um, social immune system where we say there are some ideas that are so reprehensible that we need to punish someone externally. It's not enough to say you're wrong. You have to uh, be wrong and lose your job or get harassed or whatever, whatever the consequence is. And um, that's just, that is, um, when you scale things up to internet scale, it just ends up being really disproportionate. Like there, um, before, before going viral was a thing, you could be shamed at a local level for things that you said. Um, it would be hard to be shamed at a global level. It would just, it wouldn't make sense for someone to become nationally famous because they were a rando who had said something really upsetting. But on Twitter, um, there's, there's this strong um, mimetic component where 
if you see people piling onto someone, you're very tempted to pile on with them. And that means that um, on Twitter, instead of one person being yelled at by half a dozen friends who then forgive them a week later or a year later, or maybe, you know, maybe, maybe it does actually affect their lives, but then they have to go somewhere else and start a new life, but they can start a new life. On Twitter, it's more like this can be by far the most notable thing someone has done and um, a million people know about it and their name now auto-completes to something terrible when you Google it. And um, there's, no, there's no escape, there's no real second chance. Um, Freddie DeBoer has written about this and um, Elizabeth Burdick has also written about this question of forgiveness. Like um, when there's a social media pile on, no one knows what you're supposed to like no one knows what the mob is actually demanding. Um, no one, there's not a forgiveness ritual or an apology ritual and people who do apologize. And in fact, people who have, who say that they have wronged someone and that they've made amends to that person, they don't get forgiven. So we've, um, you know, we've sort of developed this um, and it's at this point, a really trite point to say um, it's Christianity, but uh, with all the original sin, none of the salvation. So it's like a, a much, much darker, bleaker Calvinist philosophy, but it is. Um, we, we used to have one weird trick for um, forgiving people, which is they go to confession and they do their penance and they're done. And um, many other cultures have some way to just expunge the horrible thing you've done. Um, sometimes it's pretty hardcore. Like one way to expunge your sins is to kill yourself. And um, a lot of cultures don't like that, but some cultures say that that is, uh, that is roughly what you should do, or at least what you should seriously consider. Um, I don't know. Like, you know, you'll, you'll have anonymous drive-by randos who say you should kill yourself. I don't think that that is what, um, what the actual um, Twitter pylons, like that's not the median opinion that they have, but I think they don't know, like they know what to do, but they don't know when they're done. So I think the pseudonymous economy is, um, is important. I think that the thing to keep in mind, and I, I wrote a piece on this recently, is that um, pseudon if you have a pseudonym and you can retroactively match it to your real, real name, you have a call option on all sorts of crazy opinions. And uh, my favorite example of this is that there's this Twitter account, I think it's uh, BeyonceFan666. And what, um, what happened was the account posted a prediction one time and people looked at the timeline and the timeline was like 20 tweets. And every single tweet was a prediction about something like this celebrity is pregnant or um, Brexit happened and here was the vote or um, you know, this, this, al this person is dropping a new album in this month and they all happened before it was widely known. So the, the account was just one good prediction after another. And of course what had happened was someone had created a locked account they had posted many thousands <laughs> of predictions. So like they posted every possible Brexit outcome. They went back and deleted everything. And then they posted one good prediction and probably retweeted it from their real name account. And then um, the account blew up. So that is, uh, that'll become ubiquitous if we have, uh, if pseudonyms are widely used and trusted as much as every other account. What I think we have to do is make this adjustment towards um, a sort of either, like you can basically think of pseudonym, a uh, real name is proof of stake and pseudonym is proof of work. So. Um, the proof of stake is I'm saying, I'm saying things and I know that um, I could lose face publicly. I could um, you know, lose, lose income or I could bring shame to my family if I turn out to be wrong or turn out to be evil or whatever. Um, with pseudonyms, there are some pseudonymous accounts where it is just incredibly impressive how much effort they have put in to their writing. And um, some of them are quite obscure, but quite good. And in that case, you know that the pseudonym is not the real person, um, that they could be saying things they don't believe, or they could be exaggerating their beliefs, um, they could be trolling, but you also know that if they, 
if they have a good record writing about something and then they say something really extreme, that that record would go away. So they could actually, they do actually have skin in the game. It's just a different kind of skin in the game. Um, there's a lot of this in finance because there are a lot of people who for either um, internal company reasons or legal reasons or risk aversion or whatever, they write, but they don't write under their real names. And um, you know, I think the, the best practice there is if you work at a hedge fund and the hedge fund just, uh, you know, just filed 13G, they just bought 5% of the shares outstanding of some small cap company, you really shouldn't be on Twitter pumping the stock. Um, you probably will get in trouble for that. But if you are at a hedge fund that does large cap stocks and you happen to find a small cap stock that you think is really interesting and you are um, you do your own deep dive on it, that's that's the kind of thing that a lot of the um, anonymous or pseudonymous FinTwit accounts will post about. And then it's also common in politics and um, there's just a lot more adverse selection for the most extreme views versus the best ones. But there's also just a lot of cleverness and creativity. Like there are a lot of jokes where um, you can make the joke and you feel like, this could be, this will be funny to 90% of people and 1% of people will think it's just the most appalling thing they've ever heard. And pseudonym, pseudonymous accounts give you the ability to make those jokes. So a lot of the pseudonymous accounts are funnier than uh, the real name accounts because they're not, um, they're taking less personal risk with their comments. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what I feel about many of the meme accounts on, on Twitter because you you ask them and, and my guess is that 99% of them will be some uh, so, someone who works at a, uh, at a brand name company but, but can't tweet under their real name for, uh, for, due, for legal reasons. And then what happens is that all, that all that creativity, which could have been used in writing deep dives on small cap companies, goes in making fun of, of Jerome Powell on Twitter. So, so, yeah. so, so when I think of it, I'm like, oh, what a shame. But uh, my last question to you is, where should ambitious people go today? Um, I'm, I'm still struggling with this question. So, um, you know, there's the, the respond to market signals answer, which is go work for Facebook or Google. Mm-hmm. You will make a lot of money. You will have a, a tiny impact on millions of people's lives, but you will have an impact. And then, um, you know, I've, I, I asked this question of my readers and I think mm-hmm. the two best answers were very different. Uh, one of those was that you want to become a, um, a high, high production value focused influencer. So if you, um, if you could work at Facebook as a designer, for example, instead you should create a Substack about excellent design and you should um, make a name for yourself and um, you have a little more freedom to comment. You have a lot more freedom to, to act and um, it'll take a long time for you to get the same financial rewards, but you'll just um, you'll be able to have a bigger impact and it'll be tied to your name, not the company's name. And then um, the other answer was um, biology, medicine, healthcare, that um, that the dam has broken somewhat and that mRNA vaccines, um, they are they're going to change the world and that our awareness that um, we can that a, a cure for a novel disease can be invented and uh, approved within a year and that the actual dose is gonna be rolling off the, uh, rolling off the assembly lines within 12 months, um, that that actually changes the world and that that is going to affect pandemics. You know, we, we can be pretty confident COVID's not the last one. Um, it's also going to affect chronic diseases and that it's going to affect how we think about healthcare in general. So the optimistic answer is that every really ambitious person should be cracking open bioinformatics textbooks and um, you know, maybe, maybe doing some, um, some weird quantified self-experiments like the, the heroic um, CRISPR entrepreneur who uh, injected himself with something and died. Um, we, 
I, I'm always fascinated by people who take their academic interests seriously enough that they uh, they actually die or at least risk death. Um, and there's like there's a set of uh, there's a set of academic interests where you really can't do that um, either. Like with history, I guess you know there there are some people who they they imbibe enough history that they decide to become a world historic figure, and um, that's often a fatal decision or at least a very dangerous one. But there's um you know there are some parts of physics where at one point in the wild and wacky mid 20th century, you could um, you could put yourself at risk of radiation poisoning, or you could be the one person who's confident enough to say, this is actually not going to kill me. It looks dangerous. This thing is glowing, but here are all the precautions I've taken. And I'm going to prove to you that it's safe by doing something that would otherwise kill me. Um, you know, we, we used to have more of that. I think there's been a lot more of this um, sealing off of the, the risk from the, uh, the research. And it's, it seems like a, a symptom of, uh, it's a symptom of progress if people can risk life and limb to learn something. And then it's a symptom of stasis when there's just no opportunity to do that. So I, I hope that that is, uh, that that's the thing that ambitious people do because I think there's, there's a lot that can be cured. Um, there are, you know, there are a lot of diseases that uh, in principle we could solve them. In practice, they are of course very hard to solve, but um, progress can be made. And then aging is uh, an increasingly big deal. The world is getting older. And I think anything we can do to, uh, to allow people to um, be, have the, have the bodies of younger people for a longer period in their life. So, you know, um, even if lifespan doesn't go up, if um, years of decrepitude goes down, then that is still a huge win from a utilitarian standpoint. Um, and there are, there are a lot of lifestyle factors, but I, I suspect there's just a lot of progress to be made in terms of healthcare um, that, that could solve some of the aspects of aging. So I hope that's what happens. Given your two options of going to biology and high value uh, influencer, I'm really regretting my decision not to take biology in school now. <laughs> but uh, I have a sub stack and I, and I know which di- direction I'm going. <laughs> there's always time. Okay, yeah. There have, um, there have been a surprising number of people who were early in one field and then it felt like they were late to the next thing they did and then they did most of their big accomplishments later on. Um, a weird number of them in quant finance. Um, there are successful hedge funds founded by mathematicians, professional gamblers, um, a jazz musician, actually I think a couple of jazz musicians. Anyway, um, for whatever reason, musician? late bloomers go into quant finance, but um, there's, there's no reason in principle that um, someone couldn't make this pretty wild career shift into a totally different discipline, especially when it, so the thing to keep in mind is when a discipline is changing really fast, um, it means it's not too late because the half-life of knowledge is really short. So um, when I was reading about the, the invention of the transistor, there were all these anecdotes about people who were who were getting PhDs in physics in the 30s or even getting a bachelor's in physics in the 30s that every um, every fall, the new textbooks would arrive and their their professors would learn physics. They would have to learn what has happened in the last year. Like, what is an electron? It, you know, we didn't know what it was and then we figured out what it was. Um, so if you are a sufficiently sharp student, you could actually be ahead of your professors merely by reading through the textbook faster than they do at the beginning of the semester. So if you can, if you can find domains where the half-life of knowledge is short, but knowledge is accumulating rather than just being replaced, like in the, in the meme economy, the half-life of knowledge is short because everything becomes obsolete and people never think about it again. Um, but in, um, in physics in um, the twenties and thirties, half-life of knowledge was short because we were learning so fast. And hopefully 
hopefully there are other fields today where that same dynamic is true. And those are fields that you can pivot into if you're smart and willing to work very, very hard. Okay, yeah. Uh, thank you so much for coming. And this has been one of the most ent entertaining and informative con conversations I've had. So uh, you're my third guest and I, I hope to see you as guest 103. Awesome, okay. let's do it. Okay. Oh, yeah. All right, thank you so much for having me. This was really okay. fun. Okay, thank you, bye.